0: you know what you're, you're
1: just horny for cameras
0: it Well, like speaking of horny for anything uh, this movie mm-hmm, that you want yeah, to talk about uh, oh yeah sexy let, movie let me tell you the one thing that was like uh, a little bit of a bummer about this when I was watching it was like I just was coveting the outdoor space so much <laughs> I was like oh yeah oh, I yeah. know they're I know they're in danger but man they're in all these big giant open spaces that just looks yeah, great <laughs> <it's> so cool <laughs> it looks so right? great oh yeah when did uh, you you see this movie when it came out. I watched it right in the theater, I believe, or right after it came out on Blu-ray. One of the two, mm. and uh, mm. I just watched it again literally today, uh, yeah. and thoroughly enjoyed it. Hell yeah! This is a great movie. Like this is like I, like I, it wasn't up for any of the awards, but it really should have been because I feel like for a horror movie. This is it goes above a, and beyond. this is an art piece. Yeah, this is an art piece of a horror film.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: Um and there's not that many of those. Uh and also it, <laughs> it it has like the audacity to be a pretty clear metaphor that still mm-hmm. works. You know what I mean? Like that's uh surprising that's, in and of itself. In horror,
1: that's hard to do because well, it's so it,
0: yeah, and we've started to get kind of excited about that as a thing in uh, Recent, contemporary cinema. Yeah. yeah. Like like Parasite is an example or Get Out or whatever. And like this movie's not about those issues, but like it is a a conversation about a social issue disguised as a horror film, right? Like do Absolutely. you agree with that? Yeah, I think so. Um and I, didn't I see... don't think it's
1: trying to say anything crazy about it, but it's that's true. Uh, it's not controversial. It's, yeah, it's connecting dots in a unique way, an interesting way, which is kind of all we need for a horror movie. So there you but go. Way, way more are... than we
0: need. Way yeah. more. Yeah.
1: Just if you if you can't read, uh, we're talking about It Follows, mm. 2014, mm. supernatural horror film.
0: Yeah, you know, we were really written and directed
1: about... by david robert mitchell what we were really pumped about? we were
0: really pumped about this it cracked i remember this was like people were pretty oh, excited about into, it yeah. 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 yeah yeah i remember like when we when were shooting stuff that year we were talking about it on set a bunch mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. it was one of those like that is a movie <clears throat> holy shit i loved
1: it and i walked away and i was like when i walked away i saw it with swam at vista i think i saw it at the oh, vista cool. and um i was like how much was that how much was that Did it take to make that movie? And I looked online and found the answer, and I'll tell it to you all right. I'm excited. Yeah, two million dollars. Two million dollars to make this movie. That is so good. That is so good. Perfect. It made twenty three million. Not as much as you'd expect. In fact, I'm sure that there's a lot of people who haven't seen this movie. Go get a copy of it, because. Listen to what I'm gonna say, cause I, it's my time. <laughs> it's time. Yeah, it is, the <laughs> but, hour of Abe, is nice uh, It's a cool 100 minutes. Uh, if you like horror movies, it's one of the best of the last decade. Fly, and and yeah. I'm gonna tell you some yeah. cool stuff about it. But like, go see it, man. I mean, it or must be. have
0: made more money in streams and DVD purchases that we haven't, right? I feel like it's <clears throat> it's got at least that it's a going cold, for it.
1: It's a cold hit, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I just think that. It doesn't have that wide of a grasp, you know?
0: No. Yeah. It's, uh, which is a shame because, uh, yeah, when I watched it, that's ex- what you said is exactly what I thought. I'm like, that's the best horror movie I've seen in a very, very long time. It's uh, because there's no
1: big names in it. Um, no, there aren't. Really? Yeah. I mean, uh, I believe uh, Micah Monroe, Micah Monroe, the ma- J, J uh, right. she's been in a bunch of other stuff. Uh, including the guests, which you know, I'm a big fan about that. Yeah. Um, but she was in uh, Independence Day, the new one, the the newer oh, version. That's cool. Okay. Yeah. Of course. So she's she's gotten a few other roles, but she's uh, she's done some horror movies, and she's really good in this. She knocks it yeah, apart. Yeah. But today, I want to talk about camera. I want to <laughs> talk actually
0: about a broader.
1: I want to talk about a broader conception that I think is really freeing from anyone who uh, has artistic endeavors. Yeah. So, uh, rarely do we really talk about it in this podcast, like we usually try to frame it to the specific and more useful, or like, here's what our particular uh, interests are. And, you know, Adam and I are being directors, um, looking at the craft from, you know, that kind of craftsmanship kind of, uh inspection, you know, like here's yeah. what it means to direct or be a cinematographer. And you know, and this is um I, I kinda want to do something larger with this uh podcast this time. Ooh. Which is I want to talk about if you're just like someone who just likes to, you know, doodle. Or if you're uh someone who wants to break into an industry of some kind that's uh relatively art based, uh I want to talk about this concept And the intelligence behind the concept, because it's kind of the soundbite wisdom that you get that especially when you're younger or not necessarily like younger, but like just like more uh, new to a craft, uh, you kind of it doesn't feel that helpful. Uh, And what that is, is uh, the concept of limiting yourself into creativity Uh, in fine arts school. And I've been to too many of them. They kind of slam into your brain this idea about limitations being opportunities. Yep. And so younger, greener directors, like I was saying, get frustrated by this because you want uh, nothing more than to use all the tools and the toys that you have when you're at a you know film school or an art school or photography classes or whatnot. Um, Or in the case of you get money and you're making your first like, you know, web series or your first feature film, Uh, you have all these tools, use the toys. Ah, that's so great. But as you get older, you realize that movies aren't really at their best when they're doing everything. I think that seems pretty self-evident. I think I want to make the argument that things... That we usually walk away from and say, wow, they did some great stuff there. They're usually at the best when they take one very specific thing or a small group of things, and they do that extremely well.
0: Yep. That's totally Um, true.
1: By the way, in film school, they love Music, bands,
0: all that. Yeah. In film school, they love to do this. They love pointing out this, this. This is a fact I've heard more than once in a film school class. They're like, you know, Steven Spielberg started with an entire shark. And then it fell yeah. apart on day one. And guess what? Jaws yeah. is better without the shark. So cool. And I'm like, all right. So cool. It's they like, all right. It. They love it. All right. We get it. No shark. I understand. For a shark, I don't get the gesture like yourself off. One. I get it. Yeah. Uh,
1: uh, but and they do that, and that's it's because there's some truth behind it. And I kind of I have never was. No one ever like sat me down and said, "Hey Abe, listen, you stupid fucking fucker." <laughs>
0: <You know? laughs> they didn't uh, start with that. No, <laughs> they never
1: did that. <laughs> no one ever did that and said, "This is what I mean when I say limitations are opportunities." Right. Directors often find themselves working with limitations and a necessity, like I'm saying. But every now and then, they impose a limitation on themselves in order to give a picture its uniqueness. Um, And a well-known example of this is lens choice, Um, i.e. what focal length, what lens you're going to use for the movie. For the unacclimated lens length is the measurement of the field of view of the shot. So a higher number means more telephoto or more zoomed in, and a wider angle is the lower number. Cinema typically plays wide. We talked about this all the time in this podcast. We love this. Simple stuff. Here's some films. I did some research. Here's some films that use only one
0: lens for the entire film. I love the shit out of this because everyone needs to know this is not a thing everybody used to do, but it's definitely Mm -hmm. in vogue now. Uh, Yes. Yeah, it's in vogue now. It used to be you used a pretty wide range of lenses. like That was pretty standard in movies. Mm -hmm. Now it's becoming like you want a cool look pick a lens and just, that's the movie. That's, oh, that's shoot the Shoot whole movie on yes. it, baby. Yeah. By the and way, I'm like, mm-hmm. I, I tried that. I tried it. It cracked. I like rom.com, mm-hmm. especially in season two. I was like, we are going to be on a 25. Like that's mm-hmm. the movie. Everything's a 25. And I kind of liked it. And I also kind of was like, why at the end? But uh, it's not, even, not shit on it's it. It. even
1: crazier. And someone who's not on the list because he's not really um, as well known. I believe it's Ozu or it, it could be Oshima. I forget. I, had, I didn't do the research on this because he's not as well known. A Japanese filmmaker, yeah, um, used one lens for their entire life of making movies. <laughs> Dead serious. They used a fifty yeah. for everything. Yeah, I think well, it's Ozu. I think Ozu used a fifty for everything. What a milk toast yeah.
0: lens, though, to live on the fifty. You know uh, what I mean? I don't know. I mean, Alfred it's...
1: Hitchcock disagrees. My friend, well, I, right? Uh...
0: <laughs> that's well, it, but again, it's the kind of lens that's like not a. It's not a bold lens choice. Like you don't feel that choice that much
1: in the 35 millimeter format. It has been said often by a lot of cinematographers and people who look at frames and lenses all the time. They say that 50 millimeter seems to be the one that most aptly describes human vision. Oh, like when you're focusing on something. Oh, like if you're looking at something in middle distance, like, you know, Six, seven feet away from me right now is my door, and I'm gonna look at my door. And the proponents of like how my brain is interpreting depth of field, like what I like the edges of frame in terms of what I can focus on, and then when it starts becoming like peripheral vision, right? They say fifty is a good 50 is the. the that's number. interesting, but that's just. I think yeah. that's a lot of psychology going into that, and I don't think it's a hard and fast rule. It's just something some people say. I propose
0: uh, coming over to your house, and I also look at your door to see if this yeah, is Yeah, look at my inaccurate. door. <laughs> I, I, I uh, kind of remember it, I do the but list? I didn't see it. Let me do the list. All right, do it. All
1: right, go ahead. <laughs> All right, because I think people will find this interesting. All right. I know, right. they will. The, the Wrestler was shot on a 12-millimeter lens. Love that movie. It's, it's actually... It sucks to start that one with that <laughs> with this list entry because they shot on a Super 16 format. Yeah, so that means that the lens, the the focal lens, is slightly different than the rest in this list. But that's like more or less twelve millimeters, mm-hmm. which is really wide, mm-hmm. the widest on this list. Mm-hmm. And then going into increasing more um, telephoto lenses, Birdman was shot on an eighteen millimeter lens.
0: Yeah,
1: you really feel uh, that some, one. You feel that you one. Feel, you feel yeah. that one.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, same same lens. Uh, shot many many years before Orson Welles' Touch of Evil was also shot yep. on an 18 millimeter lens. Yeah. Um, the first feature of Wes Anderson, Bottle Rocket, was shot on a 27 millimeter, which I would argue is he he played a lot with. He plays in that middle kind of 35 27 35 40 yeah that's almost all of his stuff too you you can notice that one but he does he does do some telephoto work i was surprised that he was doing
0: white. this this early in his career oh yeah he yeah. actually
1: went he went in the opposite direction because he wanted to flatten his spaces but that's for a different podcast it is. <laughs> yeah definitely uh the last picture show was shot on a 28 millimeter uh, recently, I think 2017, or don't quote me on that, The Witch mm. was shot on a 32 millimeter.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, Chinatown oh, was yeah. shot on 40 millimeter. Royal Tenenbombs, the other. Uh, on the list, that's Wes Anderson was shot on a forty, so he shot on a twenty-seven, and he's gotten kind of more telephoto as he's, as time has gone on, because the other one, Rushmore, was all shot on a forty millimeter. So he noticed that you know Wes Anderson likes this trick. Yeah, a he lot. pivoted he's to it. He's shot many movies on single lenses. Yeah, um, and he loves that forty. And I think that that's kind of what he's come to. I don't know if that's what he shot, you know, Fantastic Mr. Fox and you know all those on. I don't think so. It didn't you come up be, when I was doing my research. You wouldn't be. I surprised. wouldn't be surprised if there's not a lot of yeah. forty in those. Uh, the Godfather, surprisingly, I was surprised by this. That's very surprising.
0: Uh, <laughs> also shot yeah. on a forty.
1: Huh. And of course, bringing in the fifty. Psycho, by Alfred Hitchcock.
0: Now, even in the shower stuff. Even that's all in a 50.
1: Mm-hmm. They just brought it real close.
0: Wow. I got to watch that again. Cause that seems impossible, but uh, mm-hmm. I believe you. Cause it's here on this list and you looked it's at it It's here on this list and I didn't. And so, so therefore it's yeah.
1: infallible. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. No. So uh, like, that's just an exercise in showing you that there's no discernible, you know, one could argue qualitative assessment, but that's less interesting, but like directors of all types, was making completely different movies for many different reasons. Choose to sometimes do this tactic. It follows as a film that doesn't choose one lens. I I did a little switcheroo. It's I'm, we're not talking about movies that shoot on only one lens, ah. one lens length. Ah. But it does actually do mostly 18 millimeter. That is. is just happenstance. However, I want to focus on something in this particular podcast, which is that it uses one particular tactic in throughout. A lot of the disciplines in making films that you may not have noticed, and it does it exclusively uh and just to kind of run through that uh all camera motion is kind of rigged to move at one speed. The world is a lot of static shots. If you watch this movie, camera will often not move at all, or when it does move, it moves. It creeps. Yep. I think that's the word. I'm, I agree with. Yeah, it, the shots when they pan or tilt, they creep to follow characters. There's a few steady cams. There's even a handheld camera. There's one. one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But when the camera pans and tilts, I think intentionally done by the filmmakers, it always is
0: one speed. It's also, and this is not hmm? always motivated, which is a thing you no. almost never see.
1: Yes, Uh, I don't want to. I know that. I know you want
0: to talk about that, but that's like the fact that it's one constant speed and not motivated by the movement of a character Mm -hmm. is the eeriest thing about the movie. Yeah, people
1: run out of frame and back into frame. Usually, if you have a subject, you focus will follow. If they're gonna, they wouldn't go out of frame. You're, they're always we're trying to keep them in frame. No, it does that for a very specific reason. My argument is that it disregards that convention because it follows that it follows camera is a force of nature that doesn't obey the character's stories. Right. Much like it's villain. It moves at a constant speed, regardless of its victims motions. It's like thematically intertwined with the monster. And I also think that visually from just like, uh just for i for the reason's just like visually to my eyes it's captivating to watch i like it it's it's new it's fresh i hadn't seen it before yep. so i highly re- recommend it and uh to me there's a few things that they did to make sure of this and i want to kind of go into why and how they did those things that that robotic
0: zoom thing which this movie does all the time uh-huh. is uh it's actually it, it's a thing that we saw a little more of in the 70s it doesn't, it's not in films as servo, much anymore. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the servo zoom. Yeah. Right. And like, now when we see zooms, uh, we kind of, I mean, at least in like the last 15 years, they've kind of either been like the office-y pump zooms, mm-hmm. or they've been like the Tarantino like drama zoom, right? Like the Kung Fu zoom, well, basically. kind of...
1: Yeah, yeah, like you're talking about like the uh, Django one where it zooms in on. Well, he does uh, it all you know, the time, like Leonardo. Yeah, yeah, he it's loves that because it comes from the '70s, and if you right. remember, like Easy Rider, I if do, you remember yeah. uh, Robert Altman. Right there, he you loves goes, that baby. too. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Although there's a lot of Robert Altman in this movie.
0: Actually, Altman does some servo stuff. Uh, he kind of does mm-hmm. a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean, that's just to like give people a little bit of like historical context for like. This Zoom thing that happens in this movie, I know it does. It, like, when you think about it, you're like, yeah, sure, there's Zoom in a movie. Yeah, there really isn't Zoom in movies like this anymore. You know, like it's this because movie is it unique. was
1: developed at that time in the 70s, 60s, right, 70s. Right. It was a new tool, yeah. new technology, so they used it, yeah. much like we used you know, the tools that have been, been invented recently. Yeah. 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 yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. Uh, let's talk about uh, the lensing of this film. Oh, you we know it. Into... I'm ready. Oh, I love it. Oh, We're yeah. already talking about lenses. Mm. So I want to, I wanna, if you've seen the film, remember, I'm going to describe the first shot. Go watch it if you haven't seen it. The first shot of the film is a static shot of a street, nothing in it other than the car's suburban street. It's a wide angle lens. I believe it's an 18. It drifts to the right as a woman runs out of her house like a teenage uh girl. Uh we do a th- like almost a 360. We do like a 270 degree pivot around a static point. Like the camera does not move, it just pans around in a circle until we return to the house and then it fo- and then it continues and follows her to her car. All the time, the whole time she is freaking out because she seems, we don't know why she's terrified because we don't see anything, but she's acting like there's something real close to her and she is dodging things more or less. She's looking at something very specifically and running away from it. The camera does not move. Uh, So in this movie, what the movie is basically about is the concept of a sexually transmitted uh, haunting (laughs) There's a demon or like the sex monster. Yeah. It. And what it does is it moves at a basic speed. It is invisible to everyone in the world, except the person who it is following. And that person is the person it follows, uh, is the last person who had sex with the person who it was following before. So if you get killed, it then bounces back to whoever you had sex with before who gave it to you, um, or whatnot. And so it just is this like pay it forward. It's kind of a lot of people pointing out that it has a lot of um, people talked about like AIDS or HIV. Uh, People just talk about uh, STDs in general, but it's also like kind of a coming of age and, you know, uh, finding oneself kind of movie like most horror movies are when they deal with a group of teens. So it has that whole like, it's like throw a wrench in that gear. Uh, and uh, I think it's kind of effective. Uh, the basic idea is that she gets it from a guy um, and she's told, like, look, he, he, like, Ties her up in a warehouse and says, "Look, this is there's this monster that's gonna follow you. It doesn't matter. It never sleeps. It just keeps falling. You can drive away, but it's eventually gonna get to you. So you gotta have like your head on a swivel, uh, and you gotta be smart about this." Bye. And he's just an asshole. Yeah, that league. was a really
0: and, troubling element that didn't it. I, it didn't strike me as hard in 2014 as it did this time, where it was like, "Wait a minute, yeah, you it's like, really fucked up." Yeah, he like chloroforms her and ties her up and they kind of just move on from that it's like what's really fucked up is the people that for the then for the next two
1: acts of the movie who you're like getting to know yeah they're like okay well the only thing we know that works like they give it to each other right one guy actually gives it to like prostitutes yeah they're, they're gaming the system you know, and they're n- not thinking ethically. It was a little vague. They're like, I just don't want to die.
0: It's pretty fucked up. It was a little vague about whether he actually did give it to a prostitute. He definitely drove by... And it was like, oh, I think shit, yeah. I think it's absolutely
1: buying time.
0: Uh, that's interesting. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, that would probably buy them a fair bit of time, one presumes, right? Yeah, like, there's
1: a lot you don't see in this movie. But that yeah. that's uh, neither here it nor there. It is neither it's, here nor there, sorry. That is an interesting aspect, the ethics of It Follows. Yeah, um, yeah. But, like, that's the, base, the stage is set. So, according to the DP of It Follows, I found an interview with him, and he said, quote... <laughs> We chose a set of Cook S4s, very nice lenses, Um, and we had an Angenieux 24 to 290 millimeter, which is the one that you were talking about with the servo lens, and uh, an Allura 14.5 millimeter to 45 millimeter. So pretty wide range, but that's only like three. That's like two zoom lenses and like a handful of primes, and then anyway, back to his quote. I would say maybe 80% of the film was shot on the cook 18 millimeter. I think we only use primes higher than 50 millimeter. Once the goal was to use the wide frame as a way to create tension. I think that's great. Yeah. I think that is a, a wonderful thing to say in an interview because it doesn't tell me too much. It tells me what the tools are, but it's all about the, the goal was to use the wide frame as a way to create tension. So in my thought, director David Robert Mitchell and cinematographer Mike uh, Jolickes is saying that they wanted to capture a large field of view so that you, the viewer could kind of see all around the characters. Mm-hmm. I think this is because they wanted to create a sense of this inevitable threat coming from anywhere. That's why they chose places that were usually populated like college dorm spaces and quads and suburban streets. Um, they, it's a slow and steady creep and that's the part that's threatening. The fear doesn't come from the agility of the monster, it comes from the relentlessness of the monster. Yeah, the
0: inevitability of it. Yeah. Uh I agree. Can I ask you this is this is the moment where I feel like this is actually a worthwhile tangent because sure. of the filmmaking piece. Did they talk about whether like what they were doing to control the light in this movie in these big wides? Was it nothing? Was it very little?
1: Uh I assume I mean I can tell just from my eye that they had bounce boards and stuff right. and they used silks.
0: Right. Yeah. What do you mean? Were you well, thinking so like, of I'm thinking of all those three sixty shots, right? So like the last time we Yeah, there's not much you can do on right. those three sixty shots. Exactly, unless you're unless you're Batman, right? Like so Batman spends hours and hours and hours like doing all kinds of insane lighting control. In order to get to the point where they can shoot a 360, this is a movie with a two million dollar mm-hmm. budget, and they shoot more 360s. So, like, are they just not giving a? They're not really caring about controlling the light. That's my cu- that's my question. Yeah, and, uh, they
1: shot on overcast days to give them kind of a, um, you know,
0: yeah. Uh, D- a softer light lighting which it did have yeah uh i th- yeah. think they mentioned this was in michigan that's where this takes place like near detroit i believe so yeah because they mentioned eight mile um so that means that they picked a time of year so that they didn't have to control the light i assume right mm-hmm. like so it's like oh we're gonna shoot mm-hmm. in like march or whatever when it's like not snowy but it's A high percentage
1: of days where
0: there's, you
1: know, you go out and it's like, oh, we got a few hours to shoot today where it's going to be overcast.
0: Yeah, Now, I'm asking this because in order to achieve an effect like this, you know, from a filmmaking standpoint, you have to decide like how much control you're willing to give up to do a shot like this. Right, like mm-hmm. I mean, that's sort of you're talking about limitations, and like one of the things you have to live with with a limitation is and then you don't get to do these other fancy things that control the shot. That's what a limitation is, and mm-hmm. to shoot three sixty, the big problem becomes uh hiding all your crew, and also you have to see literally everything, and you have to be able to light literally everything or live with this is just how it looks without lighting anything,
1: yeah, I mean. Yeah, like control. There's many different avenues to control, right? Right. So, like something right. people talk about a lot is golden hour, blue hour, yep. magic hour, um, and those are two different parts of the day. Yeah, magic hour, two different parts of the day that uh, the light looks a certain way, and they're known because, as we all know, they're they're amazing. They look amazing, they but sure they're do. over in twenty minutes. Yep. Um, and so, if you shoot something during that time, it looks amazing. Uh, I've shot during those times, and yeah. That you don't need to light them if that's what you're going for. So it's once it's twofold, it's control in the sense that you know what you're going to get and you don't need, you know that too, you don't need to supplement it with other stuff because uh, limitations are once again, your friend Yep. because you chose the right answer. You thought smart. You didn't work hard. I
0: thought they achieved uh, a really great looking film. Given this tactic and that budget, like it looks very yes. good, which I'm surprised by. Yes. Given this, anyway, uh, yeah, wanted to take the that tangent.
1: Wide shots, they did very little. I think there's some bounce board work and stuff, but they're not bringing a five ton truck right out right. with with John Toll's sixty foot silks for every shot. You know, you just like couldn't Brave make Heart. this.
0: You couldn't make this movie that way. No. Yeah, it's not happening. No, I agree. Okay,
1: and the and the the budget says it didn't happen, mm-hmm. uh, but it still looks amazing. Yes, 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 yes. Thank yes, you yes. for tolerating my um, tangent. I appreciate it. No, no, no. Uh, I think that's that's kind of goes in, like it goes into the limitation thing. But by showing the wide suburban streets and like later in the film, there's like wide open beaches, places that seem safe, because there's usually people around. Right if you aren't watching closely, one of the people will catch you off guard and kill you. So I think that's the intelligence of the lens. That's the motivation for they're actually putting a character into the lens. They're saying the camera behaves in a way. And what are those rules? And by sticking to that kind of limitation or just saying, I'm only going to use like an 18 millimeter. Most of the time, I'm always going to operate at this speed. They're starting to form a system here. And that's, you know me; I'm big into you systems. You are a system, I boy. About, I love it. It's because all the best stuff has it. Uh, static camera. I want to talk about that just a little bit more. Uh, the film is mostly static and unmoving overall. Not just talking about the camera, but like we talk about the can a little bit. Very limited handheld. I think it's only like one scene. Steadicam is only like five, like a handful of shots. And when it does it, it still, even when they use motion, it maintains composition. That's the important part of how they use Steadicam. So even though it is technically moving, cause it's usually like on the people's backs or in front of them as they walk and talk, you don't feel the footprint of motion in that shot because, uh, what it does is it allows you to kind of maintain that composition and nothing's changing. Like, no, it's not, it's got one person on left, one person on the right, and they're walking. And then by the end of the shot, it's still one person on the left, one person on the right in basically the same area. So even though there is motion in it, He's playing down that motion. So every time he uses Cam in this movie, uh, I find it's funny because he's doing it out of necessity right. of like, I have to get them from here to here. Yes. He's not using Cam as like a filmmaking tool in the way that like you mentioned a few episodes ago, um, like uh, Chris Nolan does, where it's like this choreographed move that shows like motion through like – foreground background all these things are happening to distract us and make a beautiful kind of like dance that we see um he's not doing any of that stuff no he, i don't even he didn't even have the extras to do that so he just did his steadicam uh, i think that's pretty smart his
0: cam feels like uh like one of the rare moments where this movie gets conventional you know yeah. like uh and it's almost like oh man a steady cam which normally the steady cam's like here we go baby right uh mm-hmm. in a movie cuz you feel like here comes a sexy shot it's the opposite in this mm-hmm. movie uh which is saying something he he he, he it's like i
1: want to keep my camera stationary but i can't because people are moving well what's the best way that i can keep it feeling like it's stationary. Well, maintain the same distance from your subject. Try not to change the background. Don't block them so that they're moving a lot and there's people behind them. And there's a lot of changes in background. Like you're doing things to intentionally make it static at this point. Yep. Uh, and I think that this has an actual psychological effect on the viewer mm. because it gives you that open space and the fact that it's static more or less in terms of its compositions gives the viewer the ability to scan around the frame because you become uninterested a little bit because it hangs so long. That's another thing we'll talk about is editing gives you time to breathe where you're like, okay, I'm seeing their faces and they're talking and well, what's over in the left? And I know I'm supposed to be scared of like at any time a monster could come out. So you kind of play this Where's Waldo game with the monster in your head. Every single person who's seen this movie has done this. I think Static is both a great choice for giving us this meditative pace and being able to take in all these terrifying shots because it reminds us that uh, be, just because the shot isn't moving erratically, like a lot of horror films do, notice, not- notably like slasher films, yep. they rely on speedy editing, quote unquote it can still inhabit any part of the frame. So we're entirely reliant on what our ma- main character can see, even if her friends can't see the monster. Mm-hmm. That's a super good hack to me. To yep. Okay, here's my system this is why it's terrifying because I'm going to make you play this little game where you're looking around. And that's what static, that's one he's done doing several things at one point or at at all times, but um, static camera is just one of them. Right. Another thing he does, uh, which a kind has touched on, but like to get more into it is camera motion, which is uh, they really, the limitations really start to shine here. Uh, there's a typical shot that comes up many times in the film, much like the first shot of the film. It happens again when Jay, our main character sees the monster for the second time at school. Uh, an old woman is walking across the quad as she stares from her seat in like uh, in class through a window, the camera pivots. It doesn't really move in space. If it does, I because I did notice that there is a little bit of like kind of, it actually kind of slides out. It's trying to hide it, which once again is a nod to me by the director saying, like, ah, I had to do this for X, Y, or Z reasons. But you know, I'm trying to make you not feel it. When you watch this film, pay attention to these large panning shots because they typically wrap around. They're all the same. They typically tap around, uh, go around 270 to 360 degrees, and they prime us to scan the frame. Like I was saying, and horror films today, I want to point out like. Think of like Netflix's haunting at Hill House or the Conjuring franchise. Most of the jump scares in modern horror is about limiting the field of view using claustrophobic frames. Usually the monster invades the frame, so they pop into the field of view. It follows is very different. This movie never shows the monster walking into frame. Usually we cut to a wide and they're already walking within it. The scare. The horror, it's not contingent on the motion of the monster. It's based on paranoia. And when you're paranoid, you're looking everywhere. And that's what the director is doing
0: to you, the audience, making you look everywhere. It's also kind of the genius of this convention. Because uh, the reason that films often have to get claustrophobic or do rapid editing is because if you saw the actual monster or the killer or whatever... In like you know, like a like a really nice big wide of it, you might not be scared of it. You know what I mean? Like like for instance, mm-hmm. we did the descent on this podcast, and they have to really cut around those cave goblins. Like they really have to do that, right? Because they don't look that great, yeah. Right. Whereas yeah. Uh, the director here is like, look, what's scary is not even what this thing looks like. It's what they're doing. Like it's literally just right. the behavior that's scary, and like like. Yeah you don't even see the same thing every time. In fact, I was having a hard time figuring out what the thread of each person that appears is like what the narrative thread. I'm not sure there is one. Like there is. And I don't yeah, think, or I didn't, find I didn't one. catch it. So that really, it literally means what's scary about this monster is not. Where is it? I mean, it is. Where is it? But it's, but it's like, what is it doing? And it's not even, it's not trying to obscure itself. That's very creative. You know, it lets him do this yeah. really interesting way of doing horror, which is you're just watching it happen very slowly. It's great. Right.
1: It's inevitable and it's uh
0: inscrutable. Yes. You don't understand it. Yes. And it's coming for you. That's what scares. The Shining, um, The Shining is literally the only other horror movie I've ever seen that did horror this way. Like, The Shining did it a little bit. That's a good call. Yeah,
1: yeah they did, there's a few uh, common yes. uh, tricks here. Yes. Uh, another trope of modern horror I want to talk about is distance. We don't really talk about it much because it's usually not relevant when it comes to monsters. If a monster is suddenly upon you and, you know, ripping out your throat, distance is kind of irrelevant. It's close. <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> it's it follows, uh, Choose to do a completely different thing. So uh, uh, our DP basically uh, basically said in the same interview, uh, quote, another big part was trying not to cheat perspective in, dis- in terms of distance. If a person is 100 feet away, rather than punching in on a 200 millimeter lens, and now that person fills the whole frame, the idea was to keep them a small dot in the wide frame and have the movement from a realistic perspective create suspense we do break that rule a couple of times, but for the most part, we try to adhere to that. I think that's once again, the DPB, very, very humble, but also showing us exactly what they were trying to do. Yeah.
0: I mean, also deep, this is like, this is like crack for DPs, right? It's like, like, mm-hmm. like I, the best DPs that I've heard are not the ones that are like, I'm going to make this shot look so sexy. Like they are guys mm-hmm. who are like, okay, we have this rule and this rule. All right. We're going to figure out how to do this. Like, they get really excited by yeah. this idea.
1: Oh, it's thematically involved. Yes, that's yeah. what they get excited it's about. It's creative. Yeah. Right.
0: Like I, like, I haven't heard that much of Roger Deakins talking. Like, mostly I've heard him talk about qualities of light, not about narrative storytelling. But I imagine mm-hmm. that e- even those great cinematographers that do get these sexy incredible images are more interested in... Uh, like limitations, and like here, of course, this is the kind of movie we're telling. Then, like, well,
1: they're more interested in like how how am I with a lens yes. and
0: through my art telling a story. Correct. of
1: course, everyone, a producer is going to be like, my favorite part of the job is when I get creatively involved.
0: Um, it's true. So, but being a commercial DP, for instance, or like, a, I mean, even like a, an indie filmmaker, you might not have that point of view. <laughs> you know what I mean? You might be more like, right. I'm going to make yeah. this look so great. Uh, (laughs) and like, that's not actually that important, which is what, what you're saying. And I'm just underlining it, you know?
1: No. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I like that they found a thing where they're like, yeah, it's a small dot in a wide frame. That's not exactly something you see a lot in movies, but we like it. We want that shit as our good stuff. And it's made most memorable by the beach scene. If you recall, where Jay is sitting kind of in an anti-feng shui, meaning her back is to the monster, uh, or, or slash to the, uh, entrance of the beach, uh, the beachhead here. And we see a shot of her just drinking and sitting in a lawn chair and they're all joking around. And slowly the monster approaches up the dune and, it's great dramatic irony cuz we know her friends who are pointed in that direction can't see and the one person who can't see uh has her back turned to the monster. And so uh at first it's a tiny body in an expansive shot, but it, as over time it gets close enough where it grabs her hair and the chase sequence begins. It's a perfect and uh it's a perfect uh you know snapshot of what uh, he the, the DP is saying in this interview. Um, I also want to point out that uh, lensing and its relationship to distance. We have a wide angle film. We know this. So when you shoot wide, returning back to my kind of initial point about you using limitations to foster creativity, it means sometimes that you're fighting against seeing too much. That's often the problem when using a really wide lens, like an 18 millimeter. You want your frame to look nice and composed like a postcard. But if you're on a wide lens, instead of zooming in or swapping to a longer lens, you can just move camera closer to the subject. Sometimes that has an adverse effect because people get that pinholing starts happening where people look distorted. So you can't really do it on like yep. close-up shots. But they do that a lot in this movie, I can tell, because you can tell that there's a lot of well-composed shots, but they needed to... Make sure that when they were dealing with, uh, like the middle distance, like most dialogue scenes, uh, you know, they, if they're using an 18 millimeter, they have to bring that lens real close to the actors yep. for those dialogue scenes. Yep. And if you'll notice, it's it, like unless you're looking for it, like I know to look for it because I kind of pay attention to this stuff. And like, if you follow enough about like how lenses change images, you'll start to notice these things too in films, but you'll notice that people are more or less the same size in every shot. Like because the filmmakers intentionally stage camera only a few feet away. Like they said, okay, you, every time we have a dialogue scene, the camera never gets this close and it never gets this far away. Uh, now this up close and personal kind of positioning of camera relative to all of the dialogue scenes, even the scenes in the car they're you know, they had to like make sure that people all seemed the same size. It does basically two things. One by making everyone the same size in the shot, you don't think about the lens choice, right? So you, as the audience, if everyone looks the same, it feels consistent. You never really think about it. But secondly, the background and the field of view of the camera, in other words, what you see on the edges of frame is about the same when it cuts to another shot. Even though it's not the POV of the main character, you still feel this need to scan the background because now it's combining like terms. If all shots start to look similar in terms of the the point of view, the point of view that we know is terrifying, i.e. the one that the movie has said, this is the point of view of like the movie. It looks like this. It's a wide shot of like... Uh, like an area like a suburb or something like that you unconsciously are going to start looking for the monster yep. even though it's not a shot where the monster would come right. up because it's not the point of you're view on of, edge baby you know, yeah 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 it's keeping you on edge it's keeping you yeah. uncomfortable and that's exactly what the director wants um, I kind of wanted to point out one thing real quickly. Cause I, I try to keep like, this is a little bit more technical than we usually get, but I think it's kind of interesting, uh, just because like when we're talking about this, I think there's an interesting aspect about for aspiring directors and photographers, a lot of younger people new to, uh, direction focus a lot on what, uh, camera, like what camera was it shot on? You get this question all the time. Uh, when you go and, you know, hear a lecture from like a director that, you know, or whatever. And they're like, did you shoot on the red was an Alexa, you know, and I can't stress how unimportant this is, uh, until you're really making movies at like a Hollywood studio level. It's just really don't focus if on then, a simple, if then, yeah, a, a simple metaphor to remember, let's say you're in a bike race, right? Your legs in this metaphor would be the emulsion or the sensor, like the camera, They're the engine propelling you to move forward, but the tires, the handlebars, the things that actually make you turn the bike and like even why you're turning the bike uh, in order to cut into the inside track or outmaneuver your opponents, that's your lens. So a camera is very important. Uh, You wouldn't want to release a theatrical film necessarily in 320 or 480p. You probably would want something closer to like a Tour de France, like racing bike, which would be the equivalent to a 4K or 8K camera. But your lens is getting you everything. Right. And people sometimes think that what camera you shot on matters and it doesn't matter as much as you think. Now, what lens you shoot on does. If you're looking to become a visual storyteller, think in terms of what the tools get you, not in terms of what the quote, end quote, the best tool is. Uh, I want to bring up Clerks, El Mariachi, Following, uh, which is Christopher Nolan's first film. We're all shot on 16 millimeter, which is like l- most films do not go to f- Yeah, that's like a format for shorts. You know, most uh, people sometimes forget that there's more or less what a camera is. It's basically just a method to capture images onto film or onto a digital medium, like
0: a sensor, uh, you know,
1: uh, a lens governs what you see. It's an overlooked and often important distinction. I, I, I just wanted to make. I that might story. take
0: it even further and say, if you want to be a visual storyteller, camera body is like way low on the priority list. But there are so many other tools that are at your creative disposal if you're shooting on your iPhone, even that would make mm-hmm. your film stand out ahead of the coolest shot thing on an Alexa. Like we yeah. took a class from a professor named Bruce Block, who wrote a. a book called i think it's the visual story i think that's what it's called yeah um but essentially most of the content that we cover in this podcast ends up sort of revolving around the basic concepts of what are the ways in which you can render an image in a frame and how can you manipulate those things like colors and hue or like space deep shallow uh or negative space right things that are like these are the tools that are always present in a two-dimensional image that you're capturing on film. How can you use them to tell your story? If you learn that stuff and get good at that, doesn't matter what camera body you get. People will notice your film. I mean, it's as simple as that. And this guy yes. gets that. Uh this guy super gets that. Like I don't think yeah, this is the sexiest super. package in the world at all. But man, he mm-hmm. really understands uh how to frame stuff and how to introduce elements into the frame in a way that makes you feel uncomfortable. He's so good at that. Yeah. Um yep, yep. Anyway.
1: And I think I think that uh, it comes down to kind of like what all of these tools that I've been talking about, kind of getting back to my thesis about this uh about well, like identifying a motion or a movement or a timing your system is there to like it's scaffolding to build a perfect moment and you're trying to recreate that perfect moment time and time again in your film and that's what gives it, it, it its uniqueness that's what people go like oh yeah i remember watching that and i love that like for example we just talked about on frame rate labyrinth and like when you go out and you talk to people about, cause I've done it in like college and stuff. I'm like, why did you like labyrinth? You know, like what is it about labyrinth? And I was just trying to get visually what people were talking about. And they would talk about like, do you ever notice like the glint of like the labyrinth walls and everything's shiny. Like there's something about that movie that like, if you were to show me a picture of a wall, I'd be like, that's labyrinth and there's no other movie. It could be. That's cool. And I think that there's something about that. And this is what this, this film I think is doing with speed. Um, if you've seen the movie, you could easily recreate the speed at which it is walking, like with your hands or like you could recreate. Like if I asked you, like if you've seen the movie, uh, perform right now, like the it monster and it follows, you would know yep. exactly how to do it because yep. you've seen it, but, and they all are consistent, but that consistency is key. The because it develops that system of motion right. in this film. I mean, the film. If films were suddenly moving quickly and then slowly without discernible reason, you'd walk out of that movie thinking that movie's pacing was well off. It was it felt slow or it felt fast. Um, and I think it's because years and years of watching movies and TV has trained us as the audience to expect this kind of consistency. And when it's broken, we know it's intentional. That's why
0: systems are systems. Correct. And also the systems train you for the way to get the emotions out of it. Like, I mean, that's really what he's doing. Like, this guy is constantly giving you the experience of being w- of walking toward the main character like you're that monster. Like, constantly doing that. Why? It trains you to feel when the monster's there. And it also trains you to expect mm-hmm. the monster all the time. Even if you know while yeah. you're watching the shot this is not the monster's point of view, it reinforces this is the monster, though. The monster's always here, always present, right? And, like... Build right. a system so that when the monster does show up, you're like, oh, God, because uh, you've been waiting for it. <laughs> you're ready for it. You yeah, know? exactly. Yeah, exactly.
1: Uh, there's this other thing I want to talk about. Another tool trick about how he sometimes things went too fast because of blocking or story reasons. And so he needed a way to go, okay, I don't want that because my system wants this speed to be the most pronounced speed in the movie. So if it goes too fast, I'm like, I don't like it. I don't. So how do you play that down? How do you make that not as exaggerated? Because fast motion is easy. It's very easy to make that exaggerated. It's very quick and sudden. It's, you know, like I was saying, how a lot of modern horror, especially slasher movies operate. In the editing and whatnot. So I mentioned the slow methodical kind of approach of the sex demon and how the framing, which is a factor of lensing, uh, and you know, um, is, uh, is what the, the films are, this film is going for. The filmmakers are trying to make that. This is the terrifying thing. So we have two things going on camera pans slowly, monsters move slowly. Uh, and there's a phrase I like if called, um, in film analysis, they sometimes mention Sympathetic motion. You love this. You Um, love this so much. Yeah, so... Now, how as a director might you approach the inevitable aspect of faster speeds when you're making your horror movie and you want that to slow down? Well, when a monster is upon you, it lurches forward, the victim runs away from it, Their speed in this film but why didn't you focus on it? Or why did that slow speed that I'm talking about become the thing that you walked away uh, from it follows with in your head? I believe based on looking at the shots that this is due to much like making the monster diminutive in frame, speed is made small in terms of visual real Mm. estate. When something is close to camera and moves quickly, that speed is exaggerated, especially on a wide angle lens. It's exaggerated on frame because the distance you have to cover To move the entirety of frame, let's say left to right is much shorter than if you were to back up from camera, like go way to the back and try to cover the same horizontal real state in the frame. But you're so far back now that you have to walk like, you know, 30 feet or whatever. But if you're real close to camera, you only have to walk, you know, move like a foot and you cover the same distance because the conical structure of how field of view works. Um, So, yeah less drastic your movements are. So if that's true, Mitchell, I think, and you can the the proofs in the pudding, just look at the film. Mitchell stages all of his quick movements in this middle distance to like distance. Yep. Like I think of the pool scene when uh like the monster's chucking uh you know irons at Jay and stuff it's pretty far away. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty far away from camera. It's far away. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a small item. Yep. He's intentionally muting the speed of his subjects and frame. Yep. So this is why, at least photographically, you walk away from this film once again with this feeling of slow, meditative pace, pacing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the last kind of thing I want to talk about is the editing, because the editing is also slow, and it also, I think, uh, illuminates and kind of holds up everything that I've been saying so far. It's all about the system that he's trying to build. He's using his limitations for one purpose. And that is that all of this is consistent with the editorial strategy, wide, empty frames, a slow subject and camera movement, uh, is also consistent in the editing and the music in the music. He used this dronal 80s, th- like synth score yeah. is created by the artist disaster piece. Um, there's not a lot of melody in the score. Uh, The notes do not change much over time. They hang and they draw themselves out. Their attacks sustains and releases, which are all uh, musical terms for like the quality of the note. They're all lengthy. They have a slow kick in they hang and they fade out slowly instead of like chirping up real quick, you know. Yes. Um, the exact opposite of an 80s horror So as far as the film, music goes, exact
0: opposite of how it in exactly. an 80s
1: horror film. Ruh, ruh, Right, right. Yeah, exactly. yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's yep. it's like that's the score of this yep. movie and I think at this point I don't have to go into it we all know why. In the edit, the rhythm and the pace of the movie is entirely constructed by one very effective trick in the editing. And that is that it's allowing motion to settle. So when you're at a edit bay and you have all the dailies in front of you and you see that the camera pans in your shot, you don't cut away until the camera has stopped moving in this movie. And even then let it linger for like a second or so. Then you cut. This is a, this is like the pervasive editorial strategy for all the montages, all the, um, like the blocking and the actions made by the characters in just mo- most normal scenes, the traveling sequences of the film where they're driving around and whatnot. And it's, you know, not really a montage, but it's like a musical interlude. Yeah. Camera moves or pans or whatnot and subjects move in camera, but their stops and their starts are entirely contained within the frame. Which is weird. They don't That's weird in a movie cut in the middle of their walk. Yeah. Yeah, it really is yeah. weird in a movie because they you usually want the momentum of one cut to move to the like next. Like Nolan would do. There's something called cutting on action, right. which is the seamlessness of a cut can be hidden and made more naturalistic if you cut in motion. Um, he's denying us of that. He's editorially avoiding that. And the filmmakers have a uh, – there's another f- – f- like to show that, I guess, it's kind of the same trick, but it's – keep that, that trick in mind for the dialogue if you watch the dialogue scenes in the movie especially those with the friend circle where once jay has begun to be haunted by the monster notice when camera is on the person speaking and when it's not you'll find that mitchell consistently overlaps dialogue to the point of cutting entirely away from the person speaking for large swaths of the conversation it'll cut to the reaction shot of who's listening What this looks like, if you were to have like, if you were to mute the sound of the movie and just look at it, it would just, there's so many sequences in this movie where it just looks like a bunch of people sitting around and not talking for the most part. This adds to the stillness of the frame because even though their bodies are like paintings, they're not moving, their lips aren't even moving. (laughs) Mitchell's so focused yeah. on sustaining this feeling of stillness in the film that he wants it to read like a graphic novel where every cut is like its self composed world. And then it moves on to the next, and then to the next. Still frames with the audio being essentially text boxes. Um, so that's how he does it. That's how he did it. That's it. Uh, I think this is all designed. There's no drastic movement, no focal points in his compositions. His he edits slow. He's got slow melodies in the in the audio. It's all to exaggerate dread and this kind of. And also, I think he's kind of got a chip on his shoulder. He's kind of spitting in the face of typical horror convention. Though I can't really speak to like why he did that, but I just I noticed that like this is kind of an anti-horror yes, movie is. in yeah, this it way. Yeah, it is.
0: That's correct. It does feel like that. Yeah,
1: so other films use these slow approaches by the monster to great effect, but this film embodies the momentum of its monster in every discipline of its filmmaking, Uh, and that is how you use limitations to find your creativity. I give this movie 3 Murder Studios <laughs> out of 4. It's a great yeah, movie, really man, is. and I love I love this kind of conversation be, or like I know it's been one-ended so far, but like uh or one-sided, but I love this kind of conversations when I get excited, you can tell I'm excited about you these movies excited. because the strategy is so cohesive with what they're trying to do with the movie and it's so seamless. You either like it or you don't like it. That's the beauty of it. If you don't like it, it's fine. Yeah, you'll be don't fine. Yeah, like yeah, it. You'll be fine. But if you do like this kind of stuff, like he nails it.
0: <laughs> he he's like, this is the type of movie I'm making. I mean, I think it's interesting how this strategy, first of all, it is very cohesive and it's very noticeable, but like it still doesn't feel that loud. You know what I mean, like like uh, so. You mentioned Birdman, which to me, Birdman is the epitome of a loud, uh, stylistic set of limitations, right? Like, and one yeah. of one of the, one yeah. of the ways, sure. and I, I was going to mention it earlier, but uh, I didn't want to slow your roll because you were you were just like an inevitable force of nature creeping in on truth, mm-hmm. like a yeah, <laughs> that's <laughs> yeah, what you were yeah, doing. Yeah. Uh, so, but you were mentioning like they stage the subjects pretty far from camera so that you don't get warping, you know. Whereas like yes. Birdman does not give a shit about warping. No,
1: they'll bring Michael Keaton oh, right yeah. into the camera. He'll, he'll
0: get right under his jawline and he'll look like he's on almost in a fisheye lens, right? Like a 90s rap video or mm-hmm. something. Uh it's very it's very loud, right? And it's very cool, and it does serve a cool purpose, but it's this director is making bold decisions, but they're not um, they're not attention-seeking, and so you could still watch the movie and not sense the hand that guides you, you know? like, And I think that's mm-hmm. a fascinating space for a director to occupy. Like, the older I get, the more I get excited about, like, the Sidney Lumets of the world, you know, or, like, the Billy Wilders, <laughs> who are just very good, talented, thoughtful craftsmen who have a style but also can set the style aside and tell something in a somewhat unique visual way because it's because it belongs to that film. Like to me that's what directing really should be is like, you know, hey, this film needs this and so like we're going to do this and like build a system that's interesting and specific and our sense of auteur now or our sense of what filmmakers do is sort of craft around the idea of the director has a style that they press on all films. And that doesn't yes. produce this kind of work very often, I would say.
1: Right? No, this is a very... Like, we're talking Carpenter versus Wes Anderson, you know? Right. like Right. I like Wes
0: Anderson. I mean, you hate him and I get it.
1: Uh, but, like, he is definitely on one side of the camp. Like, you were forming camps here uh, and you're right. Yeah. Like he, he, Wes Anderson has a look over his career.
0: Well, Wes Anderson also has, like, uh, Wes Anderson verges on style over substance. Like, you know, you might, you might say, I I wasn't even going to speak to that, but but yeah, you might say that he crosses that threshold altogether. And I don't think, I mean, I would
1: say that, but like, I wasn't trying to, I I was just pointing out that, like, he's just, he's, he has a look. He's, he's trying to say, I have a voice. I'm going to make movies like right. this. Uh, Carpenter or someone like Mitchell here uh, is like, I'm more involved with what's the movie? Like, what's the thing telling us? Right. Like, what? So, when I choose loud things like visual strategies or sound strategies or musical uh, sound beds or whatever, um, I'm going to do these kind of things that all play into one kind of focal structure you know i'm gonna make sure it all it all is wrapped up in this one strategy and that is a different like they're both doing that wes anderson is doing that too but wes anderson is like it it it's between movies it like i have a i have a thing i do for all movies as opposed to a story dictates that this is how i make this i think
0: wes anderson at this point you're going to see the Wes Anderson film for his uh, eccentricities and style. Like, like yeah. you're not even, like, you, sure, you care about the story, and the story is what, is what you will walk out with and be like, that was good or not. But you're watching the movie because, like, oh, my God, they're stamping library cards and, like, renting paintings and, like, sitting in one-by-one frames and, like, you know, just the kind of shit he would do um which i don't uh-huh. i don't hate it i like it i mean i don't think it's always good but i but i do like it when it is good but then you mentioned something like Rushmore right uh Rushmore is, sort of predates this thing or it it felt like a more authentic version of this thing that he does and i think mm-hmm. there's a reason why that was such a launching pad for him because that was a time where number 1 he pivoted in his style as you just said and number 2 he pivoted to Something that was actually important to that film, and made it work. Um, yeah. and so that's people right. were really excited about it. Um, in the way that I think people were excited about this film, because it felt very like, wow, this is a really cool marriage of directors, director choice, and narrative. You know, um, I, I, like that's for instance why when I watch Tarantino films now, I find them exhausting. Um, not all of them, but, but many of them, because I feel like uh, I'm just kind of watching the director get excited about the style stuff he wants to do. And then eventually I'll get narrative <laughs> beats. And some people, they don't mind that. Um, I do, though. I, you know, again, I'm, I'm getting older and I'm more <laughs> interested in Sidney Lament than Tarantino. You know? Um, mm-hmm. that, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I know that's not, you know, the most fun thing. Um, I also... Like, <laughs> no, it's... I, you don't have to. Well, yeah, I, like for instance, I, I again, people know I teach in a film school. I would be surprised if ten percent of the film students that I encounter could name Sidney Lumet. You know, but they can all they mm. can all name Tarantino, right? Of course yeah. they can. And uh, I mean that's
1: recency bias, but also like, I think yeah, it's also it's, style we, bias. Yeah, too, we make though. movies different. We make movies. Yeah differently style matters more now I, style is kind of I
0: how you zach snyder you know right like i think now we we've lapsed into the idea of brands so heavily as filmmakers that uh even making a choice like this in a horror movie unless it's like so loud like uh mm-hmm. it doesn't guarantee you another shot at a thing you know mm-hmm. um <clears throat> yeah and even
1: directors who are On seem on surface transparent, have their stylistic approaches. Cross films. Spielberg is a great example. He seems to some most shots in Spielberg, you're not like that's a Spielberg shot. But then there's like a handful of shots every film that you're like that is a Spielberg shot. That is no one can do that shot other than Spielberg. Michael Bay is the same way. Bay is a stronger
0: uh, sense of that. Like I think Spielberg. I mean, we, sh- we should talk about this sometime because we should find the right Spielberg movie to talk about this. I don't know which one it is. Uh, it's not Hook. <laughs> <laughs> it's not it's Hook, not yeah. apparently. Uh, but Spielberg's to me, his genius, aside from being able to be the guy who brings to life these important things that change cinema history, uh, whether it's sharks or it's dinosaurs or it's uh, the Holocaust or it's D-Day, that guy has done all of that, you know? Uh in a mm-hmm. definitive way, but he's also so good at blocking plus camera movement, like just sort of like having a shot that has two pieces and everything that gets you from piece one to piece two also tells story, oh, yeah, like he's really flooding yeah. you with story all the time, uh, and he's got sort of a relentless optimism that I think we still kind of like you know he's he's pretty yeah, optimistic yeah. as you a know, filmmaker, s- uh <laughs> which we
1: his blocking is. Yeah, his blocking is. His blocking there's like one camera. way to do blocking yeah. in my head, and it's it's his way, which is not even his way. It's you know Kurosawa's right. way, which is not even Kurosawa's way. You right, know, right, like right. it's all there's just the right answer because it's just like oh yeah, it's just it just it, it moves. But I was talking more of like low angle yeah, dollies, right? Which right. is sort know. of
0: staples of the cinematic diet now. But again, yeah. you just mentioned the Spielberg. Has, uh, like kind of a way that's the way this guy didn't do it that way. I love no, that, he I was really into it. Uh, you know, yeah. I, I mean, also, I think that's part of why I like Kubrick because Kubrick basically refuses to do things Did like that, yeah, thing. he doesn't yeah. do stuff like that, and uh, he takes way bigger chances, and sometimes they're profound, and sometimes they're like, What is this, you know? Yeah. Um, I think Mitchell is going to,
1: there's more movies to, like, this guy's, this guy's good. Yeah, I, uh, this guy knows yeah, what he's I doing. Mean,
0: to me, he's like Robert Eggers, uh, like just a filmmaker. I'm excited. Anytime I hear their name around a project, I'm like, oh, yeah, baby, here we go. Right? Like, I, I, like Robert Eggers gets uh, a free watch from me until he makes a bad movie.
1: <laughs> you oh, love I love him so much. I lo- he's like
0: Lynch. He's like a new Lynch. He's like the next Lynch. I love him. Absolutely love him.
1: I think someone said. I think someone said recently. They were like, "I just uh, can I pay you to uh, talk about the lighthouse?" <laughs>
0: uh, I would take way, money. Yes, I would uh, take money to talk about that movie. I love that. Movie. By
1: the way, the, the he was on the list for. Uh, he was on the list for single camera, single lens
0: movies with the witch, right? Because yeah. he did the witch, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean he So he, he he's mm, good, man. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh he's good. I think funny enough, I think his strength might be writing. You know, like mm-hmm. I think he's a great director, but I think I think he's got a really interesting like point of view script wise. Um but we're getting pretty far from this movie, and I don't want to do that so much. Mm-hmm. Uh I think it says something that this movie it still gets us excited after the first viewing because a lot of horror movies are pretty disposable, you know? Yes. Uh, and this movie just fucking lingers, man. Like it really does. I like, I, I...
1: yeah, it sticks with and, you. Yeah, and also, uh,
0: rewatching it today. I was like, just so pumped. I was like, man, this is great. Uh, yeah. there's just so few of those. Um, great job director. What's it? What, sorry. What's his name again? Mitchell. Yeah. Is that correct? Robert D- David, David Robert Mitchell. Yeah, Robert he's great. Mm-hmm. Uh, I need to check out more of his films.
1: Yeah, he has not done a lot. Uh, he made after this under the silver under the silver lake.
0: I have not watched that, so I need to watch it.
1: Oh yeah, that one's good. But this was like his first big one. As a writer director, uh, he only had one film, which I haven't seen before. It follows, which is the myth of the American sleepover.
0: That's a weird title for a film. Which I- he mm-hmm. kind of makes one every four years. But I kind of yeah. dig that. Because like, mm-hmm. to me, mm-hmm. every four years feels like, yeah, that's about the amount of time it takes to come up with a very good movie idea and like write it and have it mm-hmm. get its good and make it. <clears throat> right? That feels right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. takes.
1: But uh, I think Check Out Under the Silver Lake, you might like it. It definitely, um, I don't know, some people found a, a lot. I like films that a lot of people think are too confusing. Like I liked primer. I like primer too. I don't, I don't think under the silver lake is even primer level. It's just, it's, it's very, it's got, I could see why you would think that the script is like too much.
0: We'll see. Um, We'll see. I, I, I'm not as judgmental about films that have genuine artistry as I am about films that don't like, mm -hmm. I don't mind if a film's uneven or broken. Uh, that's mm-hmm. why I didn't mind Book of Eli, right? We were talking about that movie, and, like, I didn't mind Book mm-hmm. of Eli because they did try something, you know? They were trying stuff, and, like, that's enough for me to get on board and want to watch it. Uh, it's the movies where I feel, where it feels kind of like a cynical project or just sort of lacking passion that really make me sad because I would, I would give mm-hmm. anything to, to have made that movie and fixed it, you know? Like, that's what I want to do, so, like... I hate seeing a movie that feels like half-loved. No way, man. Put all of yourself into it.
1: Uh, Did you also know that um, there is talks of making it follows as a possible sequel?
0: I don't hate it, but I need to know why I need to see it.
1: Well, because the end of the movie is open. Yeah, like they didn't get they the didn't monster. Get it,
0: right? <laughs> That's correct. Yeah, yeah, but uh, so it's not.
1: They're just getting away, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Like, so they've they've like bought themselves some time, but it's gonna knock off a few people right. and they're gonna you know like they just spread the disease they just smoke bombed that's they just threw a smoke right. bomb that's all it really i mean is. it's still gonna come or after they
0: launched the follow verse, and we're just gonna get all kinds of tales in the follow verse, right
1: well as i i believe because me and michael saw it uh, when it came out and we talked about how I like, we're such nerds. We're like, why would it, the second that, you know, this premise, you gotta bring science into it. Right. You gotta do shit like, okay. So every day for like a week, I am going to take a stopwatch and I'm going to go to a football field and I'm going to have it chase me and I'm going to time it, you know, and I'm going to see if there's a consistency in the amount of time that it must walk. And then I'm going to do with larger and larger distances and see if that is true to find out if my math is all right. And like throw and then move to a different, you know, place and then see if that's still true. And then like put back the envelope until you find out what is the number, what is the number that is a reasonable number where you can be like, I am going to, Uh, fly to Finland right and live for like three months and then I'm going to fly to Australia and live for five months and I'm going to you know and and then and so you just have it so it's always walking in the Pacific Ocean you know and it's not hurting anybody and one day it might catch up to you but you're talking I get years where I can not a lot it's not killing anybody and I can like go to sleep knowing that it's not going to like come that's into tough my house life. or you build a bunker right you know like there's many solves for this you know like but you gotta have a strategy <laughs> they they were and very
0: uh devil may care with their approach to getting rid of it
1: uh i think it's because we're dealing with teens well, that's right, why we're like i mean that's yeah. kind of the whole yeah. thing is like they're like ah oh, the world is crazy sex is crazy Um, it makes you think too many things and I'm ill-equipped to deal with it. Uh, That's what it's kind of trying to point out is that there's a lot of scary shit, you know, when I don't think the movie is trying to say, like, don't have sex, people. I think it's actually not trying to say anything about that it's it's just a yeah. you know but if there is a metaphor i mean it is saying that there is like it is you can appear scary to people i
0: think it's i think it's sort of winking at the whole genre of teen sex horror anyway just sort of like you know how this works right uh, but
1: yeah it's like yeah what the whole slasher yeah, right. world makes it so that if you have sex you get punished angel michael justice that's right, how it yeah. works right which is, you know, also silly. I, that's but a like, horror course, convention, though. It's justification. Uh, it's a horror convention, and he's playing with it, yeah. But I think that there's... I think some people, because of the th- amount of thought that went in this movie, started treating it with, like, a critical eye, like, a like film criticism. Think, like, it's not just this movie bad. It was like, here, there's some, like, there's substance actual, here, like Yes, metaphor right. here, isn't yeah. there? And I think that's a testament to all the stuff that we've it's been saying. It's also
0: vague enough. Like, there's interpretation. It's vague enough that it, it allows for that, too. Right? Like, most horror movies are, yeah. are so concrete about what the actual monster is and why that it doesn't really invite mm-hmm. much conversation. Um, once in a while, you get... Mm-hmm. I mean, again, th- I think this is why The Lighthouse was so appealing, is that it was definitely not that way. Um, or, you know, like, for instance, Saint Maud is a movie that just came out... Uh, and limited release. And I think there is a little room of a little bit of vague room there. And so people are kind of interested in it. Um, But this movie allows for a broader range of reads and meanings. And so I think people feel invited to that conversation because of it. Um, And that, that in itself is unique, you know? Um, Yeah. Also, I don't think people Mm -hmm. expected Mm -hmm. much out of the horror genre at all. Until like the last like ten years in terms of meaning, right? Like it very, very no. rarely. Yeah. I mean, there's a few like Rosemary's Baby and like, uh, uh The Exorcist and stuff that, and The Shining that kind of broke I mean, through. There's, but
1: there's some King, there's some King uh, that does some stuff. But yeah, uh, I know a thing or two about King. I'm finding that, that he has more metaphor than uh you'd expect out of even some of his sillier stories yeah, yeah um, I, I, uh, but...
0: I i heard i happened to catch the green mile uh king of kings uh <laughs> where mm-hmm. where that subtext was definitely on full conversation blast <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah yeah you
1: know. but uh yeah you're right uh especially uh jordan peele really brought yeah absolutely uh, w- between get out right. and us um I also think Black Mirror um there's a lot of recent like works that really are trying I know Black Mirror is technically sci-fi it's still a horror but I think it that fits. it's it's hor- sci-fi horror I think is fair for a lot of the episodes Get Out and there's something about yeah about making a social commentary while you're making your you know conventional horror film
0: Yeah and Get Out felt like the like the Rosetta Stone or something you know like or like the like like a tidal wave of opportunity that came behind it because yep and that's why he, he also thought did of it. you know what i mean he's the guy that thought of yeah, it and yeah and i think he
1: was very smart he uh got with uh cbs and started doing twilight zone because i think that is something that jordan peele knew uh is that he knew that he was like a twilight zone kid uh, i assume because he likes it so much it's his project um And he was like, yeah, I want to get back to the roots of like Rod Sterling, where it's like these episodes that are, yeah, it's a a horrifying implication of like a a premise for some some monster or a horror uh, premise for some magic or something like that, that is just for this episode. But it's really trying to reveal like, oh, vanity is the real monster or something like that.
0: Yeah. And I, I mean, I think people are a little bored by certain I think they're certainly bored by the sort of Catholic parable version of horror. Uh you know, yeah. I, I I understand that. And so now there's kind of a rise of like like basically the same premise but it's paganism. You know, like uh like sort mm-hmm. of old god horror is a thing that I'm hearing more and more.
1: Yeah, we're seeing a lot of Norse yeah. shit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Especially, but, you know, it's, but it's the yeah. same
0: idea where it's like it's this moral system, but it's a different religious background. Um, and I think that's yeah. again why Get Out is so interesting because it's like sort of eschewing the traditional avenues uh, f- for meaning and bringing one that was never considered part of horror you know like uh, like, yeah and that's just interesting and you know hopefully we'll see more things like that um,
1: yeah I'm eager to see what this director makes you know I'm gonna watch I, these I, other two
0: films I have said, I'll tell you that right now
1: Yeah, I think horror in the last 10 years, at least, is in a golden era. Like, really. I know the slasher film, you're not going to beat things like Friday the 13th and Halloween for posterity's sake. But I think horror is taken seriously now. Yeah. (laughs) And that's... Now it's a genre. That's good. We still have bullshit like Wally's Wonderland. (laughs) That just came out and that's a piece of shit. But like... (laughs) We still have those movies that hearken to the slasher genre and the old age old, like what is a horror movie, but it's also transforming to a new thing where it's kind of what sci-fi occupied for many, many years, which is to think about society Horror is
0: sort of like, uh, sort of becoming like dramas in that there's a lot more freedom but it's it has a built-in thing that dramas no longer have, which is people will be interested in it because the base mechanic of it, like the base emotional mechanic, yeah. is fear, escape, and death, right? Like, that that thing, that primal, like, the monster's here, it's going to get me, is uh, a more lucrative loop than, like, man, the human condition, am I right? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I, w- I wish that yeah, wasn't true as like- a person who loves dramas. I love them. Uh, but
1: look at this person. Yeah, look at them. they
0: aren't they a human? Look, aren't they? Don't they really? bleed like you? Uh, the, uh yes. What a performance! Right. We don't love uh. that like we did. Uh, I mean, Hollywood still loves it, but the movie audience is less interested. Sadly, uh, mm-hmm. horror is slowly kind of positioning itself to be that genre now.
1: It's just asking. It's itself trying to be it's taken trying. serious. No one's gonna stop taking drama no, 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 serious for sure. Because drama's yeah, it's not usurping anything. It's just like good for
0: horror. Well, horror <laughs> horror you know? but again yeah, good for horror. But again, like drama used to be a thing people showed up to theaters for. You know, and now yes. it isn't. Uh sadly. But horror still is. You know, uh that's oh, what's interesting man. about it.
1: You know how they have you know how I have those, like, people show like Friday the 13th, uh, like these midnight showings where like people huck like right. popcorn at right. the screen. Right. Yes. I want that shit to happen like, get out. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> it's a system of racism. It's been entrenched imagine? in America since the beginning. Yeah. Throw, throwing shit at the screen. That's a distant uh, future. I want there to be a mix of <laughs> distant future where people are like, yeah, let's treat all of our new horror films like we treated like the 70s horror films, where they're just like, Ah, oh, you want to go see the picture where I don't know a bunch of teens die and there's like a monster who's like impossible to kill?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's, that's another.
1: I, I still like funny that funny
0: link though. Like you know, and I uh, I know we got to wrap it up, but uh, a funny link. I mean, that's it a follows. funny link here is uh like actually Friday the Thirteenth is the closest analog to it follows. Like, Jason as a character well, I mean, is not yeah. that it, different. Because
1: it would start at it. Right, right, right. But, like... Yeah, in a way, no, like, also Freddy Krueger. But, but also, Jason in particular... Uh, Michael Myers. But Jason in
0: particular is a slow, lumbering, act, like, like vengeful character who basically punishes people who have sex. Like, not not exclusively, but, like, that's one of the things he does. Like, it follows in some ways, it's like an evolution of that idea. Sure, And that's sure. funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? That's a funny idea.
1: No, yeah, he he. It's like the OG. I mean, Michael Myers is the same thing. Those two. I wouldn't count Freddy, obviously, nah, for not Freddy. The reasons you just said. Not Freddy. Uh, but if we're focusing on the slow lumbering, lumbering kind of impossible to kill monster, absolutely, that's what yep. it follows is kill a bunch of teens. <laughs> that's
0: that's all. That's what people want to see. That's what we're that's watching. What people want to yeah. see kill them. People want to see kill them kill them dead and
1: people have sex in this movie they people do. have sex in it Falls. Yeah. it isn't like it isn't like friday the 13th where it's just like ah oh, yeah all the teens with the titty out you know it's like no it's, it's not, not exploitative it's not done sec- yeah, yeah that's the other thing about this movie is it's not exploitative it's not like the sex is like ooh yeah the nudity sexy. is a bummer it's actually the nudity kind of in it is a bummer
0: it's yeah. a bummer
1: almost all of it is pretty a bummer much all of it because people yeah. have like wounds and like people are most for the most part closed because it's, uh, it's people are having sex because they have to. They feel like it's a thing right, that has to be done chore, ritualistically. Yes. Yeah, it's a chore as opposed to I'm doing it because like I'm drunk and we're teens. <laughs> we're
0: teens. Um, well, well done, sir. You, 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 know. you, you brought well, the house you. down. I love it. This was great. I really enjoyed it.
1: I like this movie, and I want to talk about more. I thought this movie would be like a little too much. I think this one's a little art housey for this. Oh, I podcast. don't agree. I thought this was but right maybe on. Maybe we're gonna maybe we're gonna open. It I think it's just right
0: on. I think this just like perfect movie to talk about on this podcast. I was like right on, so thrilled man. that you picked it. Right on. Uh, great, great, well done, well done. Thank you, sir. Uh, so, hey, we love you, audience. Hopefully, uh, you'll be back next time when we talk about another movie that you love and why it, it how it was crafted. You know, that's mm-hmm. what we do.
1: Don't have sex or you'll die! <laughs> this has been a Small Beans Endeavor. We're a bunch of pals who make podcasts, sketches, music, web series, and movies. The beans always have new ideas percolating, so make sure to check us out at patreon.com smallbeans small beans. That's patreo ncom com forward slash small beans, where you can browse all of our current and past content, see what we've got planned in the future, and learn how your support can help the small beans grow into huge, giant monsters.